Welcome, Professor Samantha Langsdale from the University of North Texas, Denton. Welcome to Professor Latinx. We're going to talk about gender, sexuality, and comics and a lot more. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be a part of your series. So let, right out of the gate, um, I'm curious. Someone who studied gender and religion, religious studies in London for MA and PhD, and now you're kind of really carving new paths in comic studies. How did you get to this place of comic studies? Um, to be honest, it was a mix of, of just sort of doing what I like and then having a really supportive network. Um, so throughout the PhD, I was co-creating a feminist zine with a woman called Sophia Harrickson. And in the back of each one, we featured a comic by an independent local creator. And because I spent several years doing this, my PhD supervisor uh, recognized that it was something I was really personally invested in. And so she got a CFP through her inbox for sacred texts and comics. Um, and so I applied and went. It was a symposium hosted by uh, Ken Colton Frome and Asaf Gamzu. And that's sort of where it started. I went to present a paper on the Dark Phoenix saga. And while there, met some of my best friends in the field, but also the people who then connected me to the wider community of comic studies, um, in particular, A. David Lewis. He really got me involved in the Comic Studies Society, and that's given me so many opportunities that has allowed me to really push my energy and focus into comic studies rather than um, just sort of dabbling in it, which is where I started. So you're right now, and we're going to talk about your teaching, your actual teaching practices in a little bit, but you're in a, a, what, you're in a philosophy and religious studies program, is that right? That's correct, yes. Um, so I was hired at the University of North Texas in 2015 because I can work on both sides of the department. Um, I was trained in a study of religions department, although uh, in a very sort of philosophical fashion. And so I'm conversant um, with both. And so were they surprised when you kind of, you know, busted out your comic studies stuff? Yeah, it's a, it's a source of amusement for most of my colleagues. And it took them a while. But uh, now they regularly email me when they see things that they think I would be interested in. And certainly for those of them that have um, kids, they, they like to talk about having taken their kids to see films. Um, but even, you know, some of my colleagues that wouldn't otherwise be interested in comics now spot them in newspapers and, and will forward them to me. They're really quite proud of themselves for recognizing comics in the world. That's pretty cool. A really nice way to kind of keep, uh, to, for you to feel really good, right? In yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I understand that for a lot of them, it's really unconventional work. It's you know, hard for them to see it through sort of traditional philosophical lens. Um, but I appreciate the effort that they make and, and it does make me feel validated within that department. So a big book is about to come out, I think, yes. like this week, right? Is that? Is uh, that yeah, I mean, I think we're looking at the next seven to 10 days. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about Monstrous Women in Comics and... Yeah, tell us about, you know, why the project, some surprises and some kind of discoveries that you want to share. So this also started at Sacred Texan Comics. My uh, paper on the Dark Phoenix Saga was 
sort of combining the philosophical work of Donna Haraway, specifically um, what she did with monsters and cyborgs, uh, and a sort of study of religion perspective on you know, women's relationships to the divine or transcendent power. So uh, I kind of asked questions about whether we could reconceive of Jean Grey as the dark phoenix as a promising monster, not just someone who is destructive and scary and out of control, but um, maybe that there's a more complex way to understand that character. And I got such good feedback from the people at Sacred Text and Comics, and a lot of enthusiasm that I thought maybe there's something to this monstrous women thing. So I went home and I thought about it for a while and then decided I was going to hold my own conference uh, on monstrous women in comics. And again, uh, this is sort of one of the watermark events for me in terms of my entry into comic studies. The people who applied to come to this conference are some of the most important scholars in our field right now, um, as luck would have it. And I am so excited that that happened. We had a two and a half day conference, uh, which was just absolutely fantastic. It was exciting. It was dynamic and people really got along well. So we had great conversations. And because the conference itself was such a success, we decided we were going to go ahead and, and pursue um, a book project. So Elizabeth Ray Cudi is uh, my co-editor on this volume, and she was also one of the presenters at the conference. And we're really proud that we've got a range of uh, comics represented in this book. Uh, I myself obviously am working primarily with superhero comics right now, but I didn't want this book to, to only be that because of course comics is such a, a wide and diverse um, medium. So we've got uh, comics from all different countries, uh, including Japan, China, Bolivia, and the United States. We have different types. Um, so we have manga, we do have superhero comics. We've got sort of sci-fi and fantasy. And then we've got lots of different um, scholarly approaches to investigating the figure of the monstrous woman, uh, which includes pedagogical, um, like literary and English studies. We have a more sociological take, uh, which again, that was really exciting and different for me to actually see someone use quantitative methods to look at comics. Um, and really what everyone shares um, is a desire to sort of examine how women are made monstrous or the monster is coded as feminine or female uh, and how that connects to the broader cultural context in which the comic um, was generated and or is read. So we're also kind of performing um, a social analysis alongside close readings of all of these texts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so very much taking into account a kind of um, maybe reader response, but on a large scale, right? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So looking for uh, what kinds of political dynamics might have been relevant to the creator of the book, but then also what were audiences going to be affected by when they received a particular text. Right, no, that's great. So in a, a really amazing piece, uh, chapter for the Rutledge Companion to Gender and Sexuality in Comics, that's also right around the corner coming out. Um, tell us, share with us your work there on, you know, Carol Danvers, and this has been a hot topic lately. Um, but yeah, tell us what, what's this all about? 
this is a good testament to how interwoven my teaching and research are. Uh, I had the good fortune of teaching an honors uh, seminar of feminism. So I, I typically offer feminist philosophy for my department, but I was given the opportunity to teach a section of it for the honors college. And so I chose to teach it slightly differently. Normally I offer it as a survey um, to show them the range of feminist voices that are out there. But this time we read one book, Kate Mann's book, Down Girl, uh, A Logic of Misogyny. And we read it really closely together and then sort of supplemented that primary reading with conversations um, across feminisms. And because I was actively involved in analyzing this text with my class, when I went to see Captain Marvel in the theater, I had one of these sort of like eureka moments. I felt, you know, I was sitting in the theater and I was probably disturbing people around me because I'm sure there was glowing around my head. I just suddenly could see the pieces coming together. Um, specifically, the, the sort of treatment of Carol's character throughout the film. She's constantly being told no. And there's that really powerful montage where she falls down, is knocked down, told to stay down, and she keeps getting back up. It really resonated with what we'd been studying in terms of Kate Mann's philosophy of misogyny. So I went ahead and uh, tried to synthesize these things uh, with also, of course, a history of the character in the comics. And that's what I've ended up um, writing about for our volume. This is a chapter that looks primarily at the film, um, but I'm trying to do the best that I can to tie it into the history of comics to see how the character has evolved across media. And um, there's some brief conversation as well about uh, the character's appearance in animated series. But my focus was really um, how misogyny manifests in the film and not misogyny as most people understand it, but in terms of Kate Mann's sort of rethinking of it. Most people tend to think misogyny means hatred of women because they're women. And a lot of us can say that that's not applicable. Um, it would be sort of rare for someone to admit to that. Um, instead, Kate Mann suggests that it's something a bit more complicated. It's, it's an expectation for women to stay in their place as patriarchal culture has defined that place. And that is where I really saw the film Captain Marvel displaying um, the sort of circumstances that Carol was up against. And the sort of most villainous aspect to me was, was this sort of demonstration of misogyny. In the in your look through the kind of um, different iterations, evolutions of the character, it's um, are there moments that were surprising when you went back to through the comics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I really appreciated that at a certain point, Chris Claremont made some efforts to mitigate what he saw as sort of disappointing um, and, and somewhat sexist early decisions around Carol Danvers. So he sort of retconned some of her storyline in order to give her more agency. Um, a, her origin is, is really dynamic, has <laughs> been sort of reimagined uh, by numerous creators. And so I was 
excited to see that that happened even before Kelly Sue DeConnick, who is given sort of the most credit with making Carol into this feminist icon that we recognize now. But I think the seeds were already there. Um, I think that there was a lot being done like I said, by Claremont in particular, to try to make this a, a dynamic and independent character who wasn't um, just a sort of derivative of the original Captain Marvel, who of course was male. Uh, yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, thanks for sharing those insights. Um, other work, other areas, uh, Moon Girls, uh, Moon Girl, um, etc. Tell us about this work. This again uh, came off of the Monstrous Women Conference. This is the research that I developed uh, to share at that conference. And again, I got great feedback. Um, I can't really emphasize enough how important the community and um, the network has been for me in terms of developing as a scholar. So I started reading Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur for pleasure. And the more I read it, the more it started to resonate um, with the things that I was reading for my research and again in, in the classroom. And so I started thinking through what this comic was doing in terms of pairing um, a young black girl with a huge dinosaur, uh, which you know I think we, we can agree he's, he's pretty monstrous um, despite his very affectionate personality. He's an enormous, <laughs> you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex, sharp teeth, you know, scary red skin, horns, things like that. And it, it is quite charming on one hand, and the main character, Lunella, um, is very precocious. She's incredibly intelligent. Uh, she's ambitious. She knows what she wants to do and how she wants to do it. But something started to sort of unsettle me a couple issues in, uh, and I wondered how this combination might be perpetuating um, certain stereotypes that are already embedded, certainly in the United States. Um, so even within comics, there is a sort of tradition of pairing black women in particular with beasts. Generally, those are more of the sort of feline um, species, but the sort of coupling of, of beast and black femininity has been theorized uh, and, and pointed out to be rather problematic because it perpetuates some of our racist assumptions um, about black women. And so I wondered if, if something like that was happening in this book. Um, is monstrosity presenting a problem here? Is it perpetuating some of our issues specifically around the intersections of race and gender? Or is monstrosity offering us a, a sort of more promising way to think about things? Is it is it part of what makes this comic compelling and exciting? And of course, because I, I'm a philosopher, I don't actually have a one or the other answer. <laughs> I actually think that um, at the end of the day, this comic probably does does both. It can read one way, perhaps perpetuate certain problems, but read another way can actually provide a, a new and more exciting way to think about the intersections of race and gender in comics. I have a question for you with Moon Girl. So, um, of course, we read uh, all comics and for all ages, um, all age groups. 
Um, this one seems very specifically maybe oriented toward a younger um, reader, but I'm not sure finally. And also, is that young reader a young black girl or is that young reader, you know, someone else? That's part of the questions um, that I that I pose and I that also occurred to me. So Marvel is certainly um, aiming to get this to its younger audience. And that we can say is true because of their partnership with Scholastic Books. So Scholastic has been very invested in Moon Girl and has sort of driven the demand um, for the issues, but then also the trade paperbacks. Uh, Moon Girl is also going to be adapted into an animated television show. And all of that, I think they are hoping will be taken up or enjoyed by younger, I would say, elementary school age audiences. Uh, whether or not those are actually the readers is really hard to say. So, of course, we have this sort of ongoing problem of being able to track who's actually purchasing um, comics, certainly on a month-to-month -month basis. And even digitally, it's difficult to say um, who it is that's consuming. I don't know whether this is actually appealing to younger girls, and certainly um, is it appealing to young black girls? Most of the cosplay that I've seen as a result of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur are actually um, young women, but still older folks. A couple little girls, and that's super cute, but uh, the vast majority are, are women themselves. And again, um, the content of the book sometimes to me seems sophisticated in a way that I'm not sure if it would appeal um, to a younger audience. Of course, my other questions were specifically about the representation of what it means to be a black girl in this country. Um, a kind of pop culture writer that I quote in my article had some issues specifically around the representation of Lunella's hair. Uh, and again, this is something that has been thoroughly analyzed by black feminist scholars. There's a lot of politics that surround black women's hair. And in a particular issue, Lunella's mother is seen trying to comb out or style Lunella's hair. And she says that it needs to be tamed, that it's unruly. And again, for the woman who wrote um, the pop culture piece, about this, she found it really unsettling. She felt like it echoed a lot of the, again, the sort of stereotypical and racist things that are often said about black women's hair. And so for that reason, this book did not appeal to her. Uh, but again, she's uh, an adult, not, not a kid. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really difficult to, to say whether this book actually is a hit um, with, with younger audiences and, and black girls in particular. Classroom is so important to you, I know. Um, tell us, you know, what, what are some of the, like, Langsdale, like, trademark tricks for bringing <laughs> comics into the space of learning? I, I think that would probably make all of my students roll their eyes um, just because it, it would result in, like, what tricks? Comics are there all the time. <laughs> I, I kind of see the world through comics in a way that I think my students might find a little tedious after a while if they're not fans of comics themselves. So a lot of what I do with philosophy is try to make it relevant um, to students' lives. I try to help them see ways that it, it's true or valid or at least something they can contest here and now. 
And that can be kind of tricky uh, with some of the more abstract stuff. And so for me, I'm always kind of reaching for examples. The nice thing about superhero comics having made such a splash in film, for instance, is that there are so many examples for me to draw on, which even if students haven't seen these films, they're very aware that they exist. Uh, and so we can start a conversation, um, for instance, about ethics. And I am always sort of saying that there is a Spider-Man ethics in philosophy, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And that could align with certain paradigms of ethics, uh, depending on the philosophical tradition. But I also use them more actively as teaching tools. So uh, for instance, a section of Introduction to Ancient Philosophy that I teach primarily uses comics as our sort of in-class text. And I use uh, a book called Action Philosophers, which covers philosophy from the pre-Socratics um, up through like Nietzsche. And so we read comics together alongside the primary texts of pre-Socratic and then um, Plato and Aristotle in the Hellenistic period to try to sort of deepen our understanding of the ideas at the time. And then the last thing I would say is um, when it's ever possible, I use comics for assessment. So I will try to encourage them to consider instead of writing an essay for your test, why not try to make a comic? And this has been really interesting and exciting to see students rise to that challenge because they recognize, of course, that while it might seem simple enough to put stick figures in boxes, that if you're actually trying to convey a philosophical argument, you have to find creative ways to do that in succinct space um, with icons, images, with movement, uh, with select amounts of text. It's actually a really good practice for building a philosophical argument. You need evidence and you need to make it relatable, but you've got to do it quickly and convincingly. And so comics are a really powerful tool for helping them to learn how to do that. I bet they are all just like, you know, what, <laughs> how in the world uh, does, I don't know, virtue ethics. I didn't know that Chris Nolan's Batman was actually a kind of philosophical treatise on virtue ethics. I'm oh, just... absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this sort of segues nicely into the, some of the new work that you are doing right now. Um, I know that the classroom is close to all of the kind of research and writing that you do and publish. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your new work. So I'm currently um, working on a manuscript for a monograph it's something that I've been developing over the last several years, which again began with the Dark Phoenix saga. Um, and since then, I have presented parts of this research at various conferences uh, around the country over the years. Um, what I'm hoping that it's going to do is demonstrate how feminist philosophies can be a tool for reading and maybe even creatively rereading comics specifically with attention to the politics around representation of gender, race, and sexuality. Some of that is pedagogically aimed. Um, so for instance, the work that I've done on the Dark Phoenix saga was in part motivated by asking whether this comic could be useful in a feminist classroom. 
there are certain aspects of it that I think are troubling and that they kind of perpetuate patriarchal assumptions about women. But what strategies can we employ, um, not only to show students how to critique, but then also uh, to reread this book such that women become valuable or valued uh, actors in narrative. So this book will do something similar. Um, it's going to present five case studies of how feminist philosophy can be used as a lens or a tool for analyzing texts. And I've chosen um, books that are all discrete insofar as they all have an end. None of these um, are ongoing series. And that, again, allows me to sort of um, offer uh, concrete arguments that can be adapted and expanded upon, perhaps, for different texts. But the scope is manageable, such that each case study um, can be talked about in and of itself without us having to kind of speculate how it might change or, or morph in the future. Um, is it, chance would have it, they're also all Marvel comics. That started out because it's what I do most of my reading in, in terms of my personal interests in superhero comics. But also with each of these books, um, this has been part of Marvel's initiative to make their creative side more inclusive and diverse. So the writers or the artists on these titles um, are expansive for Marvel in terms of who they're hiring to uh, create books. And then uh, the last thing I would just say is that I've chosen these because I think um, it's clear to see in each of these that there is an attempt to sort of depict um, some kind of feminist ethos. And so it's not something that I think it, a reader has to stretch to see. I think the book demonstrates that. With America, I imagine you probably dig into the intersectionality, right, of the superhero there? Absolutely. Uh, so the particular chapter is making use of Gloria Anseldua's work. Um, on borderlands consciousness and the figure of the new mestiza and how that inherently employs a sort of intersectional understanding um, of being in the world. I can't wait for this book. So <laughs> know you're busy teaching, but yes, it'll be wonderful. Um, exciting stuff for you, the vitality in comics today. What's really exciting right now is that comics seems to be really showing off what it can do and in a way that I think is visible to a wider audience than just those of us who work in and focus on comics. So I'm thinking about the fact that um, there are books being produced uh, that adapt autobiography that are now being recognized and awarded, not just within our community. So uh, for instance, we see here, uh, they call this Enemy, which is written by um, George Takai about his own experiences of the internment camps in the United States. Um, that's been recognized, of course, by the New York Times. Um, it's also being recognized within the comics community. I think it's nominated for a number of different awards. 
And, and I think we're seeing more of these. People are choosing to use comics as the medium to convey whether it's historical experiences. I'm thinking also the representative John Lewis, many of his um, experiences have been converted or conveyed through comics. But also the fact now that you have major newspapers like The Atlantic producing whole op-eds in comics, not just political cartoons, but the whole story um, is a comic. I think graphic medicine is another huge testament to how powerful comics are and that they are being used to convey information to a broad um, body of people. So I'm thinking about all of the comics that I've seen recently about COVID-19 and how accessible and effective these are and they're being circulated widely. And so I think that's what's really exciting right now is comics have always done these things, um, but now more people are being able to see it. We're, we're really getting a chance to see comics sparkle in terms of the, the adaptability and um, accessibility, I think. Wow, thank you, Samantha Langsdale, University of North Texas, uh, comic scholar, feminist philosopher, and so much more. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you.